0: Today's message is from our executive pastor, Pastor Kevin Kelts. Please take a moment and prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. I say beyond belief, beyond belief. I, I can remember several months ago, uh, Pastor and Jared were talking, and, and I were, we were talking about what is the next step in 2019, you know, Every new year, when we go in the calendar and we enter into a new year, it represents new beginnings. And we were just saying, where has where God taken us? Where, where are we going to be doing? And, and the conversation, where has where God taken us? Where, where are we going to be doing? And, and the conversations just went on and on. And there was so much to this plan and, and what we were, we were seeing, where God has taken us. But to be able to put all of those words and thoughts and ideas into a banner was was challenging and so I can remember we were just praying about it and one day I was I was working from my my home and I get this phone call and it's Pastor Jared, and he says what are you doing and I said man I'm working he said I am so excited I've been over at the church I've been walking around just with some worship music on I've been praying just doing some meditation I've been praying for the church for people and God spoke to me two words I've got it and I was like Okay, I I, I want to hear what are the two words. He goes, I think I got it. I go, all right, what is it? And he said, beyond belief. And as soon as he said beyond belief, I said, that's it, that's it, that's that's exactly where we're going. That's exactly what we're doing. That really brings in everything that we're doing and and where. We're going, and and to be honest, when I started to think about those two words, listen, I'm 40 years old, and I know I look 21. I know that's cool, Uh, but over the last 30 years of my life, you could you could really describe my relational journey with God in those two words beyond belief. God just taken me on this journey into beyond belief. And, and, and the thing that I was, was, was just processing and it was coming to my mind is if, if we're going to go to beyond belief, the first thing that we all need to do then is, is to ask ourselves, well, if we're going to go beyond belief, what do we believe? What do you believe? And, I, and we're going to ask you this year to go ahead and do that. Would you, with, with us at the first of this year, just start to ask yourself some questions. Ask yourself, okay, if I'm going to go beyond belief, what do I believe? Ask yourself, what, what do I believe to be true about God? Uh, what do I believe to be true about myself? And not only ask, what do I believe, but then ask yourself, and in, in why? Why do I believe? If we're going to go beyond belief, you have to ask yourself. Then why do I believe what I believe? Um, I heard a story about this lady, and she was is was about Thanksgiving time, and she got her daughter together with her, and she said, "Now listen, we're going to prepare a meal for the family, and everybody knows that our family." is famous for this baked ham. It's a recipe that's been passed down from generation to generation and I want to give to you what was passed to me. So we're going to go through this recipe and it's so good. We have to stick to, to what it says and so they start preparing this ham and and they 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 go ahead and they they score the skin and and they prepare this marinade and they and she's like, "Can you do the marinade like this?" and she's showing her daughter and everything is is looking good. And And the daughter is taking in all the information and thinking, you know, it's going to be cool when I prepare this for my family one day. And it's this awesome tradition that's being passed down. And at the very last step, the mom says, okay, and the last thing that we do is we're going to cut off this end of the ham and we're going to cut off this end of the ham. And then we're going to put this baby in the oven. And the daughter said, whoa, whoa, just a second. Everything made sense until that last step. I just wonder, that that looks kind of wasteful. Why would you just cut off both ends of the ham and just throw them in the trash? And and, and the, the mom said, you know, I've... I've never even really thought about it. That's just that's just the way that we always did. That's the way my, my mom taught me, so I just do that. You know, let's call grandma. Let's get her on the phone. So she gets up her phone. She calls her mom, and she's like, hey, I'm, I'm passing down, just like you did with me, I'm passing down the secret recipe for our ham, and I, I've done everything. We've got to the last step, and my daughter just asked, why is the last step do we cut off both ends of the ham? And the, the, the grandma started to think about it, and she says, you know, I, I really don't know why. And she says, the, the, the mom says, well, could it, could it be because that helps the marinade to get into it? Maybe it would dry out. And she goes, no, actually, my mom taught me how to do it, and I added the, the step of putting the marinade in it because it was kind of getting dry. So that's kind of my step, but I really don't know why we cut off both of them in the hand. But, you know, great-grandma, she's still around. I'll give her a call. So she calls great-grandma, and she's like, hey. She explains everything. This is awesome. We're passing this thing down. And and we got to the last step, and your great-granddaughter just asked, you know, a crazy question. Why do we cut off both ends of the ham? And the great-grandma says, for land's sakes, are y'all still doing that? We were just so poor. We only had one pan, and it was real small. And I couldn't fit the ham in there, so I had to cut off both ends. She says, stop doing that that's a waste. And, and I was thinking about this, this story, and it, it's kind of funny, but the truth is that most of us develop our beliefs, and especially our religious beliefs, in much the same way. We, we mimic what we heard, and we repeat what we've taught, and we don't question it. We don't ever think about why we believe what we believe. And, 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 and the question then comes, that why don't we question what we've heard and what we've been taught? And, and in most cases, the reason is this, is because we've been taught by good, loving, kind, sincere, honest, decent Moral, upstanding people that that we trust and that we look to and that we love. And they're people that represent authority in our lives. And, And here's the thing, if you think about it, those people that we trust and we love, they, in the same way, were taught by people that they trusted and that they love. And so what happens sometimes is beliefs and practices continue to be passed down from one generation to the next generation, and nobody questions why why do we believe that? Why why do we think that? In my experience, this can lead to some belief systems that aren't necessarily true. Some belief systems that are off a little bit. What happens is we confuse the people that we love with the beliefs that they hold. And we put them, we lump them together. The example in the story is clear. The belief system the way that the family tradition the way of cutting off both ends of the ham throwing it into the trash it would have continued and that practice would have been taught from one daughter to the next daughter from generation to the generation without anybody ever asking why do we do that the mom could have heard that question from her daughter and she should have she could have said honey well that's just the way that it's been done i don't know why that's the way that we do it but that's the way that my mother taught me and if it's good enough for her and if it's good enough for my grandma then it's good enough for me she could have said honey just be quiet don't don't ask questions just accept it leave well enough alone. Don't ask questions. That's just what we do. She could have said that. And if that would have been the daughter's attitude to receive that, then the practice of doing something that was meaningless and didn't make sense would have continued to be passed on to her children and her daughter's daughter and her daughter's daughter. They would have passed on, think about this, a belief system that was useless. But because the daughter asked a simple question, and she received an answer to just a simple question. Guess what? She took her family beyond belief, beyond what they had always believed. I remember years ago when my belief system was first challenged. And I'm, I told you, you could really describe the last 30 years of my life of God taking me on a journey to beyond belief. And, and, and one of my earliest memories of my belief system being challenged was when I was about 11 years old, I remember uh, my family raised me in church. We were church people. You just knew that about the Celts family. If the doors of the church were open, the Celts family was going to be there. And listen, the church doors were open a lot back then. We had Sunday morning service. We had Sunday night service. We had Wednesday service, and we had revival services. This happened all the time. We spent a lot of our time in the church. and the Wednesday night services, I remember everybody would come together and we would have a time of a couple of hymns that we would sing together. We didn't have music like we sing today. It was different. And I loved those hymns. I cut my teeth on those hymns. They they mean a lot to me still. And we would sing those songs out of the Heavenly Highway hymn. I remember we would sing them all together. and and uh, And then each kid had to bring a memory verse, and you had to memorize a verse, and one by one, we would get up in front of the congregation, and we would cite our memory verse, you know, mine was always Jesus wept, it was real short, I could always remember it. And then we went to the back. The, the adults stayed in the front, and they did a Bible study. And us kids, we all had our own class. So we went to what was called the youth class. We didn't have like a youth group back then. I'm from a really small town. And, and uh, our youth class that night had three people in it. It was me, my best friend, who was uh, two years older than me, and then his sister, who was the same age as me. She was 11. I remember the guy that was our youth class leader, he walked in with his King James Bible because he believed that that was the only true version of the Bible. That's the real translation of the Bible. He believed it with all of his heart. He slams it down on the the, uh, table in front of us. He starts to open it up to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 22, and I could tell that he was ticked. I could tell by reading his body language that he was very upset. And He opens up his Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, and he starts to read, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do, kids, are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. And then he started in on us. And this was his problem. All three of us had worn shorts to church that night. And for him, that was unacceptable. He looked at this 11-year-old girl, and he said, I've noticed that you, have for the last couple of weeks, have been wearing shorts to church on a Wednesday night. And according to the Bible and the word that I just read, you are an abomination unto God. He looked at her dead in the eye, and he said, The Bible requires us to be pure in wearing those shorts shows me that you are not when you wear those shorts he said you expose your knees and the curves of your leg this disrespects modesty this causes a sexual attraction from the opposite sex this is disrespecting this church and you're disrespecting God I just showed you in the word of God that it says a woman shall not wear clothing that pertaineth to a man so you should be ashamed with yourself and I can't believe that you walk around this house of God walking in such a seductive manner she broke down and started to cry and he didn't care he 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 did not care because he knew that he was right because he had it in his bible I remember being furious I remember wanting to run and then he looked at us and started in on us and he says and you two boys are the same way you come in every week wearing these shorts in the house of God, and that's disrespectful. And I can't believe that your parents allowed it. Well, he, he, he just tore us up for about 30 minutes, and I actually could walk to church because we lived a block away. And when our church youth class was over, I remember walking out of that class, and, and my emotions were running wild. My mind was going crazy. My first thought is, I'm going to go punch that guy in the mouth. I'm going to go take a knife and poke holes in his tires. He makes me so mad. All holier than thou, coming in and picking on us like that. The next thought was this. But he read it out of the Bible. And, And he's a leader in our church. He's somebody that we look up to. And if it's in the Bible, then it must be true. And if it must be true then my friend must be in an abomination unto God. And if that's how God views my friend, I don't know if I want to have anything to do with God. I don't know if I ever want to go to that church, and I definitely don't want to go back on Wednesday nights. But that's what it's going to look like. And so I remember getting home, and, and, and what's happening is my belief system is being challenged. My belief system is being developed at 11 years old. I waited for my mom and dad to get home and and I I remember I, I shared with my my mom and dad what had happened and they were furious too. Where does he get off? Coming in, just you know, that Bible thumper. I and I, I looked at, I read my dad's body language, and I felt like he was about to go slash some tires and punch some faces too. Like that's what I could see on him. And then what I remember my mom saying is. We just don't agree with what he believes. She said that. Now, listen, in that moment, that brought me peace because in my life at the time, I trusted and valued her, what she said, over what this guy said. Now, what he said was valuable to me, but because I love her and she loved me, that, I, tr- I trusted what she said even more. She said this. He's taking that out of context I didn't know what that meant at 11 years old, but that sounded good to me. It made me feel good, so I went with that feeling. I grabbed that emotion, and I said, I'm going to hold on to that. And then I said, but the thing that really bothers me, Mom, is he said that that girl is an abomination unto God. An abomination unto God, thats that doesn't sound good. That sounds like she's going to go to hell is what it sounds like. And my mom said, nobody's going to hell for wearing shirt, shorts to church. That's just silly. And I thought that made sense too. So I grabbed onto that belief. So now I'm going, this guy's wrong because he's out of context. I really don't know what that means, but it feels good. I'm going with that. And then I went with two, nobody's going to hell for wearing shorts to church. That's just silly. And now I've developed some belief system. I have some things that I'm grabbing a hold of, and my belief systems are being developed. Fast forward to 2005. 2005, I'm 20, 26 years old, 25 years old, somewhere in there. I've just taken my first job as a full-time vocational pastor. I, I got on staff. I'm the lead pastor. I'm 26 years old. I'm so excited. I'm gonna charge hell with the water pistol. You know, I'm Holy Ghost filled. I'm gonna get the whole world saved. I'm gonna empty out hell and I'm gonna fill heaven. That was my whole plan, man. I was, I was, I was ready to go but I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know what I was about to face. I didn't know that, you know, the first couple weeks, it's the honeymoon phase, and everything was going good, and everybody liked me because I was a new pastor, and I was exciting. I was a pretty good communicator, uh, but then I started to face some, some problems and some things that I didn't know what I didn't know, and, and I remember I get this phone call, and All of a sudden, there's on the other line, this guy, he says, I'm so-and-so from Teen Challenge Ministry. Does anybody know about Teen Challenge Ministry? Uh, Some of you maybe. Uh, The church that I grew up in, we had Teen Challenge Ministry come once a year. And what Teen Challenge Ministry is, it's an alcohol and drug addiction Uh, recovery program, and it's faith-based, and from my experience, it was just awesome. It was, I mean, we would have them as a kid come, and they would do a service. They would come to the service because they needed to receive an offering to be able to pay to be able to take these men and women through uh, drug and addiction recovery. And so it was always a good time, and and I remember every time that they came, it was so uplifting, and I said, God, you don't have to say another thing. I'm the pastor of this church. Anytime you want to come, come. And he was like, oh, that's great. So they came on a Sunday night. I remember I told the whole church, guys, I want to have a potluck. Remember back when we used to have potlucks after church? A potluck meal. And I want everybody to bring, you know, a covered dish, and then we're going to feed these guys after it's over. And I remember that night, it was, it was great. It was just like I remember it as a kid, uh, about eight of these guys who were recovering drug and alcohol uh, addicts they, they got up there, and these grown men would just cry and sob, and they would talk about literally how they almost died because of drugs and alcohol, and then they would just cry about the redemptive power of Jesus Christ, and how, yeah, literally, this, this program would change people's lives. It was so awesome. I remember there was this one guy, and, and he says, listen, I, I just got to tell you right now, I got a song in my bones, and I don't need anybody to get up on the piano. I'll sing it an a cappella. and this guy just starts singing a song from his heart, an him that he learned when he was a kid. And I think it was this is my story. This is my song. He, and it it was just this power. There's not a dry eye in the house. It was powerful. It was transformational. I mean, you could just feel the power of God. This is awesome. So I remember we all go after the service is over, and there's, I sat right in the middle of these eight recovering drug addicts who are on fire for God, and they made me on fire for God. I was just like, this is great, and I'm talking to them. And in the middle of the conversation, there was other people from the members of our church sitting around this, this, this uh, plastic table. And I remember this one guy, he looks at me, and he said, uh, Pastor, I need to ask you a question. And I said, okay. And, and he was a really nice guy, so excited about God. He said, uh, well, I've been reading my Bible a lot, and, uh, you know, they got a Bible class there that we take every day as part of the curriculum, going through Teen Challenge, and uh, I want to know where you stand as far as the security of the believer. And I said, uh, oh, you mean, you're asking me, do I believe once saved, always saved? And he said, yeah, that's what I'm asking you. I said, you're asking me, do I believe that somebody can backslide, that somebody can lose their salvation after they've gone through a conversion experience. And he goes, yeah, that's exactly what I'm asking you. And I go, absolutely. Absolutely, I believe that you can you can lose your salvation. I've seen people, you know, fall off the wagon and do all these sins. I Listen, I've, I spent my whole life hugging the altar, man. Every time we were in the church, he would give an altar call, and I would remember all my sins, and I'd go down there and pre- beg and plead God to forgive me. And he goes, where in the heck do you find that in the Bible? And I went, "Uh, uh, uh." he goes, let me tell you about John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, Jesus, and he's saying all this stuff from memory because, man, he's studying it every day. He says, in John chapter 10, you can read it up there. He says, man, Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And he said, Jesus said, I give them eternal life, And then he said, after I give them eternal life while they're following me, they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. He said, you're crazy. You have promoted the action and the sin of man after conversion over the action and what Jesus has already done on the cross. He goes, I can't believe you get up in front of all these parishioners and you tell them that they need to ask God, you're just putting the cross down. He goes, not only that, pastor, he goes on to say, he puts the trump card out there, pastor. He said, and my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand for I and the father are one. How do you explain that, pastor? How do you explain that? Somebody being more powerful, their sin more powerful than the the security that comes from the literal hand of God? I was listening to this guy say this stuff to me, and I was thinking, oh, my God, I don't know what to say back to him. And I'm the lead pastor of this church, and everybody is looking to me, and I'm supposed to have all the answers. You know what I said? Well, it, 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 I remember I remember. one of my pastors said one time when they were at church that it says your name can be blotted out of the book of life. And, and, and so that, I, it's in there. And he goes, show me, show me where it's at. And, he, and this is what he said back to me. He said, that's completely taken out of context. And if you open your Bible and show me where that's at, I'll show you how it's taken out of context. I had no idea where it was. And I, I, let, me, let me tell you something. I went from being so excited to sit down and talk about God with these men whose lives were transformational. And, and, and they were just uplifting and thinking, wow, it's so awesome what God's doing in this young man's life. And I, I literally thought this. I didn't say this, but I thought, you stinking drug addict. Who are you to come in my church? And question me in front of my people. That's what, I mean, I'm just being honest with you guys. You've never had a thought like that come into your mind? That came into my mind. Like, I'm going to punch you in the face, and I'm going to go slash the tires of your bus. Stinking team challenge coming here in front of everybody. I could. I didn't know why I believed what I believed. And this is this is what it came down to. I said, you know what, I don't know where it's at. But my pastors taught me that. My mentors taught me that. My parents believed in it. If it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me, and we'll just have to agree to disagree. And I got up, and I walked out mad. What was happening? My belief system was being challenged. And it, it, guys, I'm telling you, it bothered me so much. I'll tell you this. It was humiliating. See, at this part of my life, I was very prideful, and I thought that I had to know everything. I had to have all the questions and for, had, have the answers to all the questions. And for me to admit that I didn't know what I thought I was supposed to know, to me, the way that I believed was a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of humility. Amen? To admit that you don't know everything, that you don't have all the answers. And humility is the same root word where we get our word humiliation. Guys, when you get into humility, it's embarrassing at first. And now these are the emotions that I'm going through. And I remember thinking, I don't I don't like this feeling, and I don't want to, to, to be in this place again. I want to know why I believe what I believe, and so what I did is I came of this place of self-awareness that I realized that I wanted to go beyond belief. I first wanted to know why I believed what I wanted what what I believed, and I wanted to grow. Everybody say grow. Now, listen for you to grow. A key is for you to grow in knowledge and wisdom is being open. Everybody say open, and being willing to hear. And I wasn't willing to hear what this. You know, at first I was like, oh, it's great that you love God. And then he's questioning me. I'm like, you stupid drug addict. I wasn't willing to hear from this recovering drug addict what he had to say. And then I started thinking about it the next day. And I was like, well, why is he saying what he's saying? And if you think, listen, that you're right about everything, then why do you need to talk to God? Why do you need to come to church? And also, I realized I didn't know everything. I was willing to admit I wasn't right about everything. And that's a great place to be. That's a place where you can grow and you can mature. Listen to what I'm about to say. I'll put it up on the the screen for you. But think about this. That which you do understand now, okay, that which you do understand now, it seems right to you. Everybody say right. What you understand now seems right to you. Because right is a term that you have used to designate something with which you now agree. It doesn't matter if it's really right or if it's wrong. You agree with it right now, and so you believe it to be true. You believe it to be right. So what you've missed then, the things that I didn't know that I didn't know, the things that I was missing at the time, listen to this, the things that, you miss, therefore, at first will appear to you to be wrong. Think about that. The only way to move forward is to ask yourself, what would happen if something that I thought was wrong was actually right? So I started to think about what this guy said. He was talking about security of the believer. I thought that that was absolutely wrong. And all of a sudden, I got to a place and I thought, Well, could what I believed to be true, the reason I thought it was true and right is because I agreed with it. Now, is there a possibility that what I thought was wrong could be right? And that's humility. That's how you remain open and willing to hear what God says. People in the academic realm understand this. Take scientists, for instance, okay? When a scientist is is uh, doing some type of research and they're working, listen, when what they're doing is not working, that scientist will set aside... All assumptions, everything that they assume to be true, they'll start over. And as a result, great discoveries have been made from a willingness and an ability in humility to just say, I could be wrong. Maybe I'm not right. And that is why it's needed, and that is what is needed to go beyond belief. You can't know the truth about God, and still you start, stop telling yourself that you already know everything about God. You cannot hear what's true about God until you stop thinking you've already heard all the truth about God. Listen to me. God cannot tell you his truth until you stop telling him yours. It's a place of humility, and that's where I was on my journey at the time. I said, God, I don't know everything. I'm willing to admit I'm 26 years old, and I may not be right about everything, which Lisa would tell you at the time, I really did think that I was right about everything, but I said, I'm open. I was essentially saying, God, lead me to beyond belief, to what I don't know. And so as I started down the road to beyond belief, and this is, so this is where we're going today. How do we get to beyond belief? Well, I'm just going to tell you how I got there. And how I'm still going there. You're going to run into a first roadblock. Everybody say roadblock. So you're on a journey. Think about a roadblock. That first roadblock is what I call filters. Everybody say filters. Everybody has filters. What are filters? Well, filters is the house that you grew up in, the family that you came from. It's the reason you cut off both ends of the ham. It's because you had a filter that told you that's just what we do. Filter is the church that you grew up in. Why didn't you grow up in church? Well, it's the family that raised you not going to church, and they told you why they didn't go to church and why they didn't believe in church, but now you're here, and when you try to read your Bible, you're going to have filters that come from those people, good or bad, indifferent, it doesn't matter. You and I, we have these filters. We have thousands of filters that we use, and we get to a place where I was, and we say, okay, I need to stop just believing what mama said because mama said, that <laughs> sound like the water boy, mama said, <laughs> mama said that going and wearing shorts to church and not going to send you hell, that's just silly. Why do we believe that? I want to read in the Bible for myself. And here's the thing. I go in now reading the Bible for myself, and I already have a pre, uh, a, presu- a, pre- a presumption of what the Bible says that mama said you don't go to hell just for wearing shorts. And so you have these filters. How do you get past these filters? I'm going to give you two words, and they sound really re- weird at first, but they are a need and a necessity for you to understand and to use for you to get to beyond belief. The first word is this exegesis, I'll put it up there, and eisegesis. You need to understand what these two words mean. I know it sounds weird, but stick with me. Exegesis means when you're reading the Bible, okay, you have an approach by pulling from what is already there. Think about a uh, the people that look for the dinosaur bones, an archaeologist. Think about an archaeologist doing a dig, and they're not putting stuff in there, right? They're going into it, and they're revealing what is already there. They're not using any filters. It's trying to draw something out of the Bible that is really there, that's already actually there. The opposite, in contrast, is eisegesis. That's when you approach the Bible using your filters, and you already insert an idea. You go, okay, I was always taught this, and so I was always taught that maybe we'll get to this maybe next week, but women can't be in ministry. That's what was taught to me from my church and my pastor, and so you have that thought, and now you just go into the Bible, and you search for for stories, and you search for words that have to do with women, and if you already have a filter that says women can't be in ministry, I'm telling you, you will find what you're looking for. You know what that's called, though? That's called eisegesis. I I mean, eisegesis, okay? A good uh, example of this is, I'll put it up on the screen for you, Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. What does he say? He says, John, revealing the revelation, he says, as I watched, I heard an eagle. Everybody say, eagle. I heard an eagle, okay, and he says I was flying in midair, calling out in a loud voice, "Whoa, whoa!" The eagle is saying, "Whoa, whoa!" to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts that are bound to be surrounded by the other three angels. And one day you'll be watching a TV preacher, and he will read this to you, and he'll say, "I want to make your attention on eagle," and he'll say, "What is the symbol of the nation?" of the United States of America, and everybody would go, oh, an eagle, and they go, that's what God's talking about right there. This is to us. This is warning us. There is a warning coming from heaven right now, brethren, and he's sending the eagle. The United States is the eagle, and we have to now declare. We need to send out a loud voice declaring, whoa, whoa, to the inhabitants, and God has sent me today, and I'm the eagle from America, and you're sitting there going, wow, this is amazing. He is so deep. I never saw that. And what did he do? He gave you a filter. And now when you see eagle, every time you read the Bible, you don't pull out from what's already there. Exegesis, you insert what you already predetermined in your head. And so now eagles are everywhere. Listen, this is eisegesis because it clearly is not what John meant the United States did not exist in John's day, so he couldn't have been referring to it. This is what my mom meant years ago when she said he took that out of context. This is what that uh, guy from Teen Challenge meant when he said to me, you're taking that out of context. They were saying, you are using ice ice. I said, Jesus, this is, this is what the pre- TV preacher does, and he gives you this filter. Now, now here's the thing. The root issue is how do you interpret Scripture then? The problem with claims like, well, I was praying, and the Holy Spirit told me, brother, and the Holy Spirit explained it to me. Well, the problem with that is 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us that Scripture is not up to your private interpretation. When you do that, you can go and take Scripture, and you can pull them out and get them to mean whatever filter that you want it to mean that's full-blown I said Jesus this happens frequently especially related to cultural understandings there are churches in countries today that are not America but it's accepted in those church in those countries in those cultures it's acceptable to oppress women. And so what they'll do is they'll go find all these scriptures that seem like if they're taken out of context, if the, and they will oppress women in the name of God, guys. This happened in our country back uh, in our history. If you go study prior to the uh, Civil War and during the Civil War, there were churches in America. There were guys like me standing in the pulpits of America, getting out their King James Bible, reading Leviticus chapter. 25, verse 44 that says, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that you are around. And they'd say, see, God permitted slavery. Slavery's okay. And in the name of God, they were promoting slavery. When Jesus then comes along and says, Listen, I'll tell you, it's very simple. All you got to do is love God, and you, then you love your neighbor as yourself. And it is impossible to love your neighbor and simultaneously use your strength to refuse them personal freedom. What is it? It's, I said, Jesus. It's them giving you a filter, then reading you a scripture, taking it completely out of context to prove a point that was not originally in there. You see, we can make almost any scripture say what we want it to say if we start with a certain preconception instead of reading the Bible with an understanding that draws out what the Lord was really trying to say through the scripture. This realization causes people to wonder, well, how do I do that? How do I know, Pastor? Well, there's an art to this. And there's something I'm about to share with you that is very, if you're taking notes, please write this down. It's going to be another word that you may not recognize, but it's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Everybody say hermeneutics. That's a a family name, Herman. And my wife's, but not nudics. I don't know. But hermeneutics, okay? Hermeneutics, it sounds weird, but I'm going to explain it to you. Hermeneutics comes from a Greek root word meaning to interpret. It's just the art of interpreting something, and it's not just theologically. It's just not just biblically. This is an idea of interpretation that it requires you in any type of writing, such as the writings of Plato or Aristotle. When reading something from Aristotle, you have to have a proper hermeneutic to be able to interpret what he meant, because it was written at a different place in a different time, and there was a different culture going on. The hermeneutic, many scholars can to be the most reliable, and you got to learn what I'm about to teach you for us to be able to go beyond belief. I'll put it up on the screen for you. It's called a historical contextual hermeneutic. Everybody say that with me. One, two, three. Historical contextual Hermeneutic. I know those are big words, but it's really simple once you understand what it means. In a historical contextual hermeneutic, the first question you ask is this. I'll put it up on the screen for you. What would this have meant to the author? In his day, in his time, when John was writing this letter, what would it have meant to him if he's writing the word eagle? The second question is, what would this have meant to the original reader? So guess what? This letter that you're reading, this revelation of John, was not written to you. It was written to another person at another time. So, in a historical contextual hermeneutic, you're just asking two simple questions What would it have meant to the author, and what would it have meant to the reader when for years we've had pastors get behind the pulpit and say, This is God's word to you. We live in America, it's an eagle. And if you don't understand a proper historical contextual hermeneutic, all of a sudden you get a filter, you develop a belief system that was not what God ever intended, and you're cutting off both ends of the ham, and you're just doing it because you trust that guy. So listen, this year we want to empower you as the church to be able to do this, to be able to look at the things that's coming from the pulpit and the beliefs that you may already have and ask, why do I believe this? And you know what? I can read my Bible for myself, and my church has given me the tools of how to do that. These two questions that I shared with you employ the concept of reader relevance. Everybody say, reader relevance. Okay, who was reading it, and what did it mean to them at that time? The people that were reading Revelation in the first century A.D. were not thinking about America When they saw in that letter that was not written in English, it was written in another language at another day, in another time. Which leads me to this. There can be a challenge then when you're studying the word of God and you're looking for to go beyond belief and looking for what is a true belief. There's a challenge because we come from different cultures than Way long ago, and that in a different part of the world, in a different time in the world, okay. We have a significant time gap, and the time gap affects language and understanding because the uses of words, listen to me, the use of, of words evolve over time. So, you guys have that video. If y'all could play that video right quick, I want to I want you guys to listen to a song from 1962 and look at the lyrics about a place somewhere up a New York way where the people are so gay twisting the night away Whoa, 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 whoa 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 that whoa whoa Sam, Sammy, Sammy what did he just say? let me tell you about a place up around the New York way where kids the people are so gay and they're twisting the night away When this song was written in that culture and in that time, this is the same culture. This is in my parents' lifetime. My dad was born in 1955. This song came out in 1962. People were still saying, how do you feel? And another guy would say, rather gay today. And what did that mean? Happy, joyous. Listen, in my parents' lifetime, in the last 50 years, culture has changed a word. You don't think that that happened in that other culture? So now my kids are going, oh, what song are you listening to, Dad? I'm like twisting the night away. And they're saying, what did Jay just say about all the people in New York? That's not very PC that's not what he was meaning. He, he wasn't using that word that way. But because we understand that modern vernacular, certain words can change meanings. Let me give you a great example of this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. What are we talking about? We're talking about hermeneutics. What are we talking about? We're talking about a historical, contextual hermeneutic. Right here, Peter prophesied something. And he says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for a fire. So he says the heavens and the earth are, there's going to be a fire and there's going to be a day of judgment and a day of perdition of ungodly men. And you'll be watching TV and the TV preacher will get up and he'll read this passage of scripture and he'll say, listen, it's right there in English which this wasn't in English when it was first written down. And the first people that read it weren't speaking in English. They read it in a different translation. And in their culture, let me me show you something when you st- see look, guys we live in a time of information we have access to, to things that we can research now that 50 years ago that they couldn't that 100 years ago they definitely couldn't that 500 years ago there was no way to get a hold of some of this information but now we can go and now study the history historical contextual Hermeneutic, right? We can study the history of the Jewish people, and when you study this, you'll find out that there was a phrase that, when the people that originally read this letter in their time, when they saw the trans, they saw the words heaven and earth, they knew it to be actually an idiom referring to the temple that the Jewish people would have in the old covenant, according to the old covenant. See, what would happen is this inside the temple of the Jewish faith, of what they had. You read about this in the Bible. There was the Holy of Holies. Have you ever heard about that? Inside of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, and it was housed. There was cherubim sewn into the wall. That room represented heaven. They, the Jewish people, you have to understand, they weren't thinking about heaven as an afterlife. That's something that us as Protestants believe in. But this wasn't written to us. It was written to them. And something that they also understood, the secondary area in the temple had a dirt floor. It was dirt floor for a reason. The candlesticks were there. The table of showbread, it represented the earth. So when he said to them heaven and earth, it's going to be, there's going to be a judgment that he was not talking about a literal heaven and an earth, although the TV preacher will tell you that because he's not using a historical contextual hermeneutic. He will tell you that it's a literal, this is somewhere in our future. And he'll tell you that there is a judgment of God coming in this time, brother and sister. And if you'll send me 19 dollars right now on your credit card, I will go ahead and kill a red heifer for you. And I'm telling you, if this happens in this moment, the judgment's coming and you won't be judged. He will preach that to you. And if you don't have a proper hermeneutic, a historical contextual hermeneutic, you'll read that and you'll go, well, that don't, that don't sound like God. I don't think that people go to hell for just wearing shorts to church. That's silly. And you don't know why you believe what you believe. But can you see how awesome this can be? I'm telling you, words change. Uh, even in the South, we have words that that people don't understand. Uh, like, would you, did you? You heard that one before? Like, Jared, I, I just had a flat tire. You didn't bring your jack... Which you did you? See, people in their day, if they had a time machine and came, they don't know what which you did you means, right? Have you heard of this one before? This is a good one. Um, it's a part of the large intestine. It's kind of a weird word, but it's called your rectum. Have you heard of that word? Well, rednecks, they'll use it differently, and they'll say, well, I used to have two cars, but my wife, she wrecked them. So you can see how words can have different meanings if you don't know the culture and you don't study it, have a historical, those are bad, historical contextual hermeneutic. What happened, though, is if you look in the history, the heavens and earth were literally destroyed by fire. It was prophesied by Peter. It was also prophesied by Jesus. And it literally happened in 70 A.D., But somebody will tell you that it's going to happen sometime in your future, and now you're afraid because you don't have a proper contextual hermeneutic, uh, historical contextual hermeneutic. So that's the first thing that you need to be able to go beyond belief. The second thing is this, okay? The second thing is this. You need to understand that God is revealed progressively throughout the Bible. If you're taking notes, write that down. God is revealed progressively throughout the Bible. Like, Pastor, why do I need to know that? Well, listen, the Bible, which we understand the Bible right here, it was literally written over a course, think about this, of 1,500 years by 40 different authors. Okay, how many people know how many books are in our canonized Bible? How many? 66. Okay. And so when you look into your your Bible, I'm just going to put up a table of contents that you would probably have in your Bible. So put up uh, this next Right there. That's probably what your um, Bible looks like in your table of context. That's what a newer Bible looks like. And so there you have all of them listed. You see Genesis is the first book, and then you have Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Now, here's the thing. We have a problem right off the bat. Let me show you. an. This would be an older Bible. Like when I grew up with, all the Bibles would have a table of context that looked like this. And this is just the table of contents for the the Old Testament. All right? 66 books. And listen, the problem is is the Bible is not set up chronologically. I don't know if you under, didn't if you understand there you don't know that, but it's set up categorically. Everybody say categorically. Okay, so really, uh, I grew up knowing this, that there were the the history books, so it split up in the history books, then I was always taught it was split up into the poetry and praise books, and then I was always taught then two uh, other categories. After that, the major prophets and the minor prophets. Has anybody ever heard that, heard what I'm talking about before? Okay, maybe this is new to you. Maybe you're going beyond belief just by knowing this. This is how, when the Bible was canonized, this is why the order is put together. It's not chronologically, it's categorically. And so what happens is, is this. You start reading the Bible, and you start in, in Genesis. And you're going along in the book of Genesis. And let me ask you this right now. Who, what is the earliest book in the Bible? Who said that? Job? Job, that is what's believed to be the earliest book in the Bible, Job. But look in your table of contents, and what order is Job? It's the 18th book in the Bible. And so what happens is when you're reading your Bible and all of a sudden you are reading the book of Job, you have all of these filters because you live in America in 2019 and you think all these things and you know about the law, you know about the old covenant, you know about the Ten Commandments, you know about the temple, you know about the new covenant, you know about Jesus. But guess what? Job didn't know about that. In fact, do you know where Job really needs to be put? It really needs to be put in the book of Genesis between Noah and Abraham. So if we're going to put it like the Bible in a a timeline, in the right chronology, you would be reading Genesis, you would get to the story of, of, of Noah, and then right there you would cut a spot and then you would insert Job. That's where he would be. But most people don't know that, so they read something about Job, and they start to believe, they start to think he knows something about God that he doesn't know, and then you think God's dealing with this guy in this way, and then you get a wrong picture of God because you don't know the chronology of the book. And, and, and So I'll just, I'll just explain a couple things to you, Okay. It's split up into categories, and you start looking at where the first category is the history categories. It takes us from Genesis to Esther, so just follow with me up on the screen. Those are considered to be the history books. Then you have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. These are the books of poetry and praise. Then you have the major prophets and the minor prophets. Now listen, the reason they call them the major and the minor is not because the major are better prophets. It's just because they're bigger books. If you go read the book of Isaiah, it's 66 books. It's a long prophecy from this prophet, okay? So they called it a major. If you go and look for the book of Obadiah, if I said get your Bible out and turn to Obadiah, if you had a literal Bible right now, it would be hard to find it because it's only one page. It's only one chapter. And so they just called the guys that had a lot to say and it was recorded. Those are the major prophets, not any better. They're just the major prophets, and then the minor prophets. They're not any more important, just means smaller. By dividing the Bible up the way they did with the categories, this really mangles up the timeline. So look at the table of contents. We have from Genesis to First and Second Samuel is actually a pretty good timeline, okay? We're going pretty good chronologically. We have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus was written for the priests, okay? Then you have Numbers, which is the story of God's people in the wilderness. Many of you know that. Then Deuteronomy. It's the renewal of the covenant. Now it's passed on to Joshua, okay? Joshua is taken over. Joshua walks with them. And then from Joshua, it goes into the judges. And that's when we hear about the judges like uh, Samson, Gideon, Ehud. You have all these guys. And then we come to Ruth. Now the story changes a little bit because it's been following all of these, the whole nation of Israel and then all of a sudden, it just focuses in on one little story named Ruth. So it's just kind of thrown in there. Then uh, it's a very small book. It does not have a lot of history to it, but you keep on reading. Then you get to King Saul, King David, King Solomon. Many of you know about them. That's in First and Second Samuel, and that's pretty good chronological order. So in the beginning of your Bible, we're doing pretty good, okay? from uh, uh, we're, we're looking at these history books, and then all of a sudden, after you go through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, it gets really weird. All of a sudden, you're trying to read your Bible through in a year.com, right? And you're reading, and you don't understand that things are out of order. You don't understand that. And you're reading, and all of a sudden, we get to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Pastor Jared preached for Nehemiah last week. So you get to Ezra, and it's, it says, and Ezra spent 13 years rebuilding the temple. And you go, whoa, 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 just a second. When did the temple ever get torn down? You're like, whoa, 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 time out. Pastor Jared just preached on Nehemiah saying, hey, I need to go home and I need to rebuild the wall. And he's rebuilding the wall. And you go, whoa, 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 just a second. When did the wall get torn down? This doesn't make any sense? All of a sudden, Ezra's rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah's rebuilding the wall. And it, it's just, it's, a, it's kind of a nightmare if you don't understand what's going on. For some reason, everything is out of order. It's just like, even when you look at the, the, the history, like, uh, look at over here, you got Psalms is right in the middle, right? Right in the middle of everything. Psalms has songs that were written by Moses. So in the timeline, where's Moses? He's way over here. And then it also has songs that were written by David. And where's David at? He's way right here. And, and then we have Job, and he should be right there. And then these guys and these guys really should be right here where this dotted, this dotted line is. And then after you read you know, the book of Daniel is super cool because Daniel, you go reading about Daniel, and he is talking about their, uh, uh, well, if you read the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, they're prophesying the wall uh, is coming down. They're prophesying that there is about to be a major judgment. They're calling the nation of Israel a harlot. There is destruction coming to this nation. And then he says, You go read Daniel. Daniel says that he reads out of, and I can read it for you right quick. Daniel says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, in the year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from scripture. So he literally read the scripture of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, when he read it, he had prophesied the desolation of Jerusalem. And it says, the Bible says that it would last 70 years. And all of a sudden, Daniel, in reading the the prophecies of Jeremiah, understands that the 70 years is almost over. And so he says, because of that, if you go reading the next verse, I don't have it for you. But he says, so I started to pray, and there was something that came over him that, God, we're coming out of this. We're coming out of what was prophesied, and guess what's going to happen? Everything that was torn down, go back to the slide before when we see the table of contents. All of a sudden, you read the book of Daniel, and now you need to go back to Ezra and Nehemiah. But here's what happens. One day, you're watching a TV preacher, and he gets up there, and he starts to read from the book of Isaiah. And he says, look at this. God is declaring that our nation is a harlot. There is destruction coming to the nation of the United States of America. And unless we bow our knee and get this nation back, I'm telling you there is a nuclear war that's coming. The Holy Spirit has revealed this to me through the prophet Isaiah. And if you don't have a proper historical contextual hermeneutic, You can't go. No. No. Isaiah said it was going to happen. Daniel saw the end of it. And Pastor Jared just preached that Nehemiah actually saw the end of what was prophesied. Those days are not in my future. Those days that you're talking about, the last days, they're not in the future. The last days are the past days. It already happened. And Nehemiah built that sucker back up again. Stand to your feet this morning. I see smoke coming out of some of your ears right now. You're just going. You know what just happened? You went beyond belief. It just happened. Now, you may say, well, pastor, man, this is really stirring something up inside of me. I want to hear more. Good. Good. We're going to talk more about this next week. Listen, I'll feed you baby birds. We'll keep going. That's great. You may say, well, pastor, that's kind of what we pay you guys to do. Y'all read it, and then you tell us what it means. Well, you do need to look to the pastors that you have for guidance But you also need to know how to, when something doesn't settle right with you, what a pastor says, that you can now go and use a proper contextual historical hermeneutic and you can say, hey, man, why are we cutting off? You just told me to cut off both ends of the ham. Why do we do that? And then we can have a conversation that has nothing to do with what normally if anybody ever asked questions when I was a kid in the church I was at, it led to a fight and it led to a church split. That was never God's intention. It can lead to a conversation that we set down and we walk through it out together. and We don't have to bring emotion into it to declare that you're right and that I'm wrong because that's prideful. We both take on humility and go, hey, I'll be the first to admit as your pastor, I don't know everything. I'll admit that I'm not right about everything. And then you'll go, me too. I could admit that. And we'll talk it out and we'll work through it on this journey to beyond belief. But you don't just need to take everything that we say blindly. Does that make sense? You don't need to be like I was at 11 years old. I didn't understand any of this stuff. I didn't read the Bible at all. And all of a sudden, somebody's telling me that I'm an abomination. I'm going to hell for wearing shorts to church. And then going, if that's how God is, I don't want to have anything to do with it. What we're doing is giving you tools in 2019 because God says we're going to be beyond belief. We're giving you tools of how to do that and say, man, this TV preacher said this or I was reading this book or Pastor Kevin said this and I don't know if I really agree with that. He's kind of misrepresenting God on that and I can go and use a uh, historical contextual hermeneutic. I can go in and see maybe he's not using proper... uh, I said, Jesus, I can go in and I can check some of these things and I can say, well, Pastor Kevin, you kind of took that out of order because I understand that God reveals himself progressively and you just really aren't understanding the timeline. So let's talk about this. Let's have dialogue. Let's have conversation and let's grow together because God brought us together. Does that make sense? Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, this morning. I just want to say that we, we love you and we thank you that you're taking us beyond belief. That you're giving us the tools that we need now to, to, to dig into the word and to think about what do I believe? And not only what do I believe, but why do I believe what I believe? Lord, I, I, I believe in this this 2019 and this year, Lord, there are some, some, some layers of pride that we have that we're taking off, and we're saying, God, I admit that I don't know everything. I admit that I'm not right about everything. I admit that even something that I believe to be right could be wrong, and something that I thought could be wrong could be right. I thank you, God, that you brought us together for such a time as this. for your kingdom now. And so that's what we declare. We declare we're moving forward into beyond belief and, and we're doing it not out of selfish ambition, but for you. For yours is the power and yours is the kingdom and yours is the glory forever and ever.